So I'm kind of uh, been thinking a lot about time lately, like how fast time goes by, and, and it's such a fascinating concept. What is time? What is an hour or a year? What does it mean that we're already four months into 2011? I know one thing it means is that I'm getting older. I'm super sore after playing two hours of indoor soccer at the Sportsplex on Friday. So that's one thing that it means to be four months into the year. Um, and if you want to know more about the philosophy of time, Dr. Wasserman is the man writing a book on time travel. Uh, but the simple fact of the matter is that we human beings don't really know how to do life without some kind of time. Every culture I know of marks time, either by clocks and calendars or by seasons or generations or sun, moon, and stars. The great religious traditions have always marked time by the great festivals and remembrances of their faith. And Christianity is no different. The Christian year begins four weeks before Christmas with the Advent season. It's a season of, of preparation and penitence and anticipation for the celebration of Jesus' first coming, longing for his return. And we're currently in the season of Lent. Today, Palm Sunday, we enter into Holy Week today. The remembrance and meditation of Jesus' final week leading up to his crucifixion on Friday and resurrection on Sunday. On this Palm Sunday, we remember the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem and sparked the chain of events that would eventually lead to his death and our salvation. For many, the story of Palm Sunday is a familiar story. Yeah, yeah, we know Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Every year the kids come up with palms. This year, no blue donkey, though. You guys remember the blue donkey? Yeah. Sophia wanted to ride that down, but she's just too big this year. I'm thinking uh, David next year could do it. But yeah, I mean, it's something that we do every year. Can't we just move on? We, why do we have to retell this story every time? It gets old. We knew it. We know it. We want to learn something new. Trust me, I feel that rub in my own heart, in my own mind, every stinking year. I'm a product of a culture that is constantly seeking the new thing, a new take, fresh insight, breaking news. I'm also a product of a culture that moves so quickly between breaking ideas and novel ideas that I hardly take any time to apply what I already know. We live in a time when the average American has access to more instant information than any other time in the world. But has it really made that much of a difference? What if we knew less stuff but actually lived out what we knew? I think that's precisely why it's important to keep retelling the great stories over and over. First, because these stories are God's story. They're not dependent on you and I. There's something that he's done. Second, when we remember God's story, we remember that we have a place in it. God's story is meant uh, to include us. And when we're included in God's story, it changes us. So as we re-enter this familiar story, let's not take it for granted. Let's not assume that just because we've heard it before, it has nothing new to say to us. It would be dangerous to take lightly the word of the living God. So what I'd like to do is stand. I'm already standing. Would you please stand? And I'm going to read this story afresh. What I'm going to do is focus the message today on 
Matthew 21, 1 through 11. But just to kind of give us some context, I'm going to read in front of that a little bit and behind it a little bit. When quotes come up from the Old Testament on the screen, I'd like us to read those together just so you don't fall asleep on me. Okay, so we're going to try this out. Here we go. Starting in Matthew 20, verse 29. Pretend like you are Matthew's original audience. Matthew, one of these disciples of Jesus, and he's written this account of Jesus' life, and he's coming to your synagogue, maybe, or your group. You've not heard this before. So as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed Jesus. And two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd sternly told them, be quiet. But they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes. And immediately, they regained their sight and followed him. And when they'd approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road, and others were cutting branches from trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of them, then cho- uh, and those who followed were shouting, When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred and shaken, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Lord, we thank you for this incredible message that uh, for many has become maybe a familiar, a familiar friend, a familiar sounding scripture. Lord, we thank you for familiarity on the one hand, 
but beg you, don't let it become uh, trivial or novel. Lord, we pray as we, as we open your word this evening that you would shake us afresh, deep to our souls. May we leave here changed people. Amen. Well, I'm thinking there must have been a buzz in the air wherever Jesus went, especially by the time he got to Jerusalem. And the chapters leading up to the story that we're focusing on tonight, Jesus had been saying things that only God would say and doing things that, that God was known to do. Jesus was confronting the forces of Satan, casting out demons, and he healed all kinds of sicknesses, social sicknesses and physical sicknesses. Jesus showed he had control over nature. He walked on water and calmed storms and multiplied food. So quite a crowd was surrounding him, and right in the middle of this crowd were his 12 disciples. They got to be closest to him, and they must have thought he was pretty spe- they were pretty special. Finally, after spending years roaming the countryside, teaching in small villages, Jesus comes to the capital city, to Jerusalem, the home of the temple, the one place you'd think you'd go if you were going to start a revolution. I wonder what the crowds were thinking. What's Jesus going to do next? Certainly, a guy who can calm seas and cast out demons could put an end to the Roman oppression over, over Israel. See, in, in Israel's history and in the prophets, there were promises of a Messiah or God's anointed one. And that's translated Christ. Coming to deliver Israel from foreign oppressors. Could this be the one? Could this be that Messiah? So Jesus and the crowds get to the Mount of Olives just outside the city. And Jesus tells his disciples to go into the village. And that they would find a donkey and a colt there. And they're supposed to just... He gives these vague instructions like just tell the guy the Lord has need of him. And it's kind of all... Kind of weird actually. Uh, So two things I want to point out with that little episode... First, Matthew's inclusion of the detail that they stopped on the Mount of Olives isn't by accident. It isn't by accident at all. In fact, there's a a prophecy in Zechariah 14.4 about God's deliverance. And this is what it says. On that day, speaking of the Messiah, his, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. So even the geography in the story... Adds, adds to its depth. So if you're a literary critic, you know, Patrick, Anna, you'd like that. Like there's these little details in there. It's awesome. Matthew's a great writer here. Isn't this weird though that Jesus tells these guys uh, to go get this donkey and her colt and it's, it's vague. What's going on here? Did Jesus prearrange this or did he have foreknowledge of the event? I think either of those conclusions would be plausible, but I think we'll find our answer if we keep reading. See, Matthew tells us that Jesus sent the disciples to town to get the donkey and the donkey's colt. And he said that Jesus did that to fulfill a prophecy. In fact, the one that Candace just read. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Again, two things I want to point out about this. First, the practicalities. When a king or a dignitary came to town, they could impress the locals to give them lodging and food. 
maybe, uh, maybe a donkey or a horse. So imagine if we had a king in our country and it came to Bellingham, they could just knock on your door and say, hey, you know, I need, I need you to open up some of your spare rooms to have some of my traveling party and if you could cook dinner, that'd be great and we need to borrow your car. And of course, that wouldn't be... A, that wouldn't be at all weird because in a kingdom, the king actually owns everything. It's not like a democracy where we live where if, you know, Barack Obama came to the door or something, he'd be like, hey, that's my private property, man. And uh, so he'd have to ask permission, right? But in a kingdom, the king owns everything. So, so that's, that's similar to what could be going on here is that Jesus comes into town and he's a well-respected teacher at least or maybe something more. And, uh, and he asks for this donkey and the owner gives it to him course we know that jesus is the king of the universe so no big deal there now this prophecy in zechariah is amazing it speaks of the promise of zion's coming king it speaks of him coming on the cult of a donkey heralding the coming of the lord the whole context of zechariah 9 is talking about the coming of the lord who would bring peace not war who would bring an end to war, not a military insurrection. So what Jesus is doing is not only teaching with his mouth about who he is, but he's purposefully taking these steps to show who he is. He's a master teacher. So instead of just talking about it, he's like, well, I could tell you I'm fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 here, or I could just do what Zechariah 9.9 says and get on the colt of a donkey and go into town. He's making a statement about who he really is. He's the promised one. He's the king. He's the one who will make peace. Now, here's the problem. Over the centuries, people had developed their own ideas about what these prophecies would look like. Okay? So in the first century, people were reading into these prophecies what they wanted to hear. And one of the dominant hopes was that when the Messiah would show up, Uh, He would be God's warrior king, and he would lead an insurrection against Rome and gain freedom for the Israelites. We know this because of what's called intertestamental writings. So writings that are not in the Bible, but from the same period of the Bible, written by Jewish people and some of their common beliefs and hopes and dreams. Okay, And that was one of the dominant hopes, that the Messiah would be this military leader. So you've got this prophecy of Isaiah's king coming into Zion seated on a donkey's colt. And Zechariah's prophecy talks about a king who will bring peace and not war. And that's why it's a picture of a king coming on the colt of a donkey and not a war horse. So all the evidence is pointing to a peaceful arrival. But the people have taken hold of this promise of a coming king and twisted it. And I think they're almost drunk with their own hopes of a military king and they're blind to the facts that are actually staring them in the face. The idea of what they want was blinding them from what was really in front of them. Okay? When I first got my driver's license, I was obsessed with hunting for my first car. I was on a tight budget, had been mowing lawns for the last couple of years, so I didn't have much to spend. Uh, So I was scouring the classifieds every day for used cars for sale. And one Saturday, I saw one for sale. It was a Toyota Celica. See, the the thing was I had to be able to afford it, and I had to meet a certain criteria that was cool enough to drive. And So that uh, Celica was on that cool enough to drive list, and so uh, I went out and looked at this car, and I took my dad with me because he knew a lot more about cars than I did. 
you know what those ads say. There's a great looking, strong runner or something like that. So my dad and I show up at this guy's house and there it is in the front yard, freshly washed, freshly painted, bright yellow. I heard my dad groan like, oh gosh. But the chrome wheels caught my eye and so it kind of made the yellow not stand out so much. Dad was skeptical. You could always sense the uh, skepticism on his face. But I looked past his negativity. I got out, walked around the car unfazed. Dad was tinkering with stuff that mattered, like wheels and under the hood. I got in the car. And the intoxicating smell of armor all and the idea of freedom that this car would represent overtook my good senses, right? So we took it for a drive actually ran pretty well except for when you turn on the brakes and it would pull hard left but I totally played it off so it was pulling hard I'm like dad is totally not pulling and oh so I thought I had fooled him we get back and I'm all hyped I'm ready to buy this car and this is the car it's the only car we ever looked at uh, and dad convinced me okay just sleep on it so in the ride back home he said you know the two front wheel bearings need to get replaced. All you had to do was shake the wheels. And the whole rear end is Bondo. It's been in a major accident. And I was like, oh, man. I'm not saying that Jesus is a junker car, okay? I don't know if that's a, that's a quotable. Uh, but what I'm saying, what I'm saying is that when we get an ideal in our heads, it affects the way we see the world. Sometimes we look to Jesus for what he can do to us. No for what he can do for us rather than what he has done for us. Sometimes we look to Jesus for what we want to get from him rather than look at what he wants to do in and through us, right? In chapter 20, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to die by crucifixion. He then gives them a stern talking to about those who lead in his kingdom. And he says, the leaders in my kingdom must become servants of all. Next, he comes into town on the colt of a donkey in an act of humility. But watch how the people respond. They miss all those cues of humility. And this is what they say. This is chapter 21, verses 6 through 9. The disciples went and did just as Jesus instructed them, which you can't fault them there. They're completely obedient. They go get this donkey and the colt. They lay their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. And most of the crowd spread their coats on the road, and others were cutting branches from trees and spreading them on the road. And the crowds going ahead of them, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And these people are quoting directly from Psalm 118 which was very clearly in that day a messianic psalm, which means that they had taken that psalm and said, we believe that this psalm is talking about not only something that happened when it was written, but it's, gonna, it's talking about something in the future, when this Messiah would come and rescue us. It's a psalm of deliverance. And the people shout, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna, Hebrew for God save. And in the highest means God save us using your Godly resources, the best stuff you've got. Save us in the best way, I think is how Dale Bruner puts it. And they were putting branches down on the road in front of Jesus. John's gospel tells us those branches were palms, which is, of course, where we get Palm Sunday. And that sounds like an insignificant detail to us. But those palm branches meant a whole lot in the first century. You see, years earlier, before Rome had invaded Jerusalem, Syria 
ruled over the Jewish people. And the Syrians completely desecrated the temple, trashed it, put pagan sacrifices in there. And a guy named Judas Maccabeus led a rebellion against Syria and won Israel's freedom back. And for decades, the Maccabee family ruled over Jerusalem and protected Israel from foreign attack. And one of their great leaders, Jonathan, was murdered by a foreign king. And so the people of Israel were terrified. Their leader was down. And now they were, they were um, open to attack from outsiders. But Jonathan Maccabee's little brother, Simon, encouraged the people. And he fortified the cities in Israel and led them to victory. And he reconsecrated the temple. And he ruled the kingdom in peace. And he was a powerful military leader who was able to crush his enemies. And you know, when he came into Jerusalem riding on a horse, how the people greeted him? With palm branches. So these palm branches became a symbol of Israelite um, nationalism, of Israelite freedom, of uh, an era of peace in their minds. So in our story, despite Jesus coming humbly, the people seem to really want him to be something else. They want him to be a military savior who would reestablish Israel as a thriving, independent nation at the expense of other nations. And Jeff and I were just talking about Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, wonderful, wonderful book from which Jesus often draws on. Those visions in Isaiah are not just about Israel getting theirs and everyone else getting pushed aside. They're about the nations of the world coming to know Yahweh as the one true God. That's the vision of God. That's the vision of Messiah. The people, by their palm branches, we can tell, they wanted Jesus to be a king like the Maccabees. And now we get to what I think is the punchline the meat of Matthew's version of this story. And it's in verse 10. When he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, who is this? Now that word stirred comes from the Greek word seo, which in English, that's where we get the word seismic. It's talking about earthquake stirred. Stirred is a weak word. The place quaked when Jesus came into town. And people were asking, who is this? You know, in Matthew, we see this type of thing happen before. When the Magi came into Jerusalem, when Jesus had been born, they came looking for the baby Jesus. And they came into Herod's court. Herod was king. And they said, uh, hey, where is this one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was shaken. And all Israel with him, or all Jerusalem with him, Jesus' presence should be familiar to us, but not benign. You know, we talk a lot in, in church circles, at least, about having a personal relationship with Jesus. Amen to that. Uh, Jesus is accessible. We, we ought to know him. But that familiarity should not cause us to think he's just buddy Jesus. He's, one, he's a guy just like me. His presence should shake us. In Matthew 27, after Jesus died on the cross, the earth again, sayo, it quaked. And the temple veil was torn from top to bottom. So here's the question. Who is this? Who is this? Who is Jesus? 
Is he the hope of the world or is he simply the hope of our personal or national desires? Do we recognize Jesus as our king or is he merely the personal little king of, of the stuff that we want done? I think, I think we do a great disservice to Jesus and to ourselves if we reduce him to a miracle worker with no authority over our lives. If we trust him to somehow get us out of life's jams without entering into some jams on his behalf, we've got it wrong. Thankfully, thankfully, Jesus does care about you and I. He cares about our pain and our illnesses and loss. He cares about those who are politically oppressed. And he will rescue. It just won't necessarily look the way we want it to look. Friends, in the presence of Jesus, let our souls quake afresh, even in the midst of this familiar story. Let them quake and wake us from the familiarity of Jesus and his story. That frankly, it can numb us to the fact that he's not only our savior, but our king. Matthew shows us when we, what happens when we get it wrong. The people ask, who is Jesus? And the crowds reply, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. They've missed the mark. Jesus is a prophet, but of course he's much more than that. He's a prophet declaring the good news of God but he's also God incarnate, God made flesh. Oh, Jesus is going to act as a prophet, all right, just as the people said. But if you keep reading the rest of the chapter, he prophesies the demise of the temple. The very institution that the leaders were trying to protect would be destroyed because they failed to recognize the presence of God in their midst. The same crowds, you guys, that are hailing Jesus as king and son of David and, pray, and saying Hosanna and putting coats and palm bridges down, that same crowd, in less than a week, or many of them are going to shout, crucify him. How fickle we are when we don't get our way. The irony is that this story of Jesus, uh, his arrival, is bookended by two stories of healing of blind people. The blind and the lame were not even allowed to worship in the temple at that time. They were seen, seen as damaged. Yet in these two stories of Jesus healing blind people, one before the so-called triumphal entry and one after, it's the blind who not only see because Jesus heals them physically, they actually see Jesus as he really is, and they follow him. And at the same time, those who claim to have all the biblical knowledge, who claim to know what God is up to all the time, they're blind to who he is in their midst with Jesus. Why? Why did the crowds get so disillusioned with Jesus? Because I think he wasn't supportive of their agenda. Their agenda was short-sighted. They wanted Jesus to deliver them from Rome, but he had bigger ideas. Oh, he was going to deliver them. He's just going to deliver them from their sin and death for all time. They wanted national salvation and judgment over Rome. Jesus would die to save the entire world. So the earth quaked, and the people asked, Who is this? And do you know who answered that question correctly? The ironic answer is that it was a Roman guard who was implicit 
in Jesus' crucifixion who actually got it right. When Jesus died, the earth quaked. And Matthew 27:54 says, Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, they became frightened and they said, Truly, this was the Son of God. The challenge I feel in me and what I want to offer to you this evening is who is Jesus? He's the one who died for us and bids us come and die. He's the one who gives us life and tells us to learn how to live from him. He's the one who became human that we might become more like him as we surrender. He's the one who's the greatest king and the greatest servant. He's the only one worthy of our trust and obedience. And that's going to look so many different ways as we ponder that this week. But who is Jesus to you? My prayer is that our souls would quake afresh with being confronted by our Savior and King. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for this wake-up call, for recognizing how we uh, are so often like the crowds. We come together at least once a week and, and sing to you and about you, and we are encouraged. It feels good to get together. And we say a lot of things and we pray a lot of things. But it's so hard to submit as well. Through all of our words, we sometimes turn you into something you never claimed to be. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would um, that you would reveal your triune self afresh, Father, Son, and Spirit in our hearts. That we would see and love you as you really are and align our lives with you rather than being delusional and trying to force you to fit our lives. As we enter into Holy Week, we are so thankful that you didn't wait for us to get it right before you walked the road to the cross. We remember from our last series, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Lord, to be honest, that's where we're at. And your word tells us that's a great place to start. So Lord... Um, we ask for forgiveness. And we ask that you would set our feet on that righteous path to love and to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.